Welcome to What About Us, a podcast about how policies, history, and culture affect rural Tennesseans. We're proud to be a part of the Tennessee Holler Podcast Network, and I urge you to go to tnholler.com to listen to past episodes of What About Us and other great podcasts. Sign up for the e-newsletter and make a donation because the Tennessee Holler is people-powered. Also find the Holler on Twitter and Facebook. Today, our topic is what about our farmers? And our guest is Jessica Wilson, an actual farmer in Middle Tennessee. Welcome back, Jess. Thanks, thanks for having me. We spoke last year and I learned so much. Tell us again about yourself, your family and your farm. Sure, Um, I live here in Middle Tennessee and I have um, three children and a husband and a farm which consists of livestock and vegetables. Um, we've kind of been through a number of different <laughs> different main crops, but right now um, the main thing we grow are sheep, which we grow for wool and for lamb, for meat. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have a small kind of flock of dairy goats, which is really more of a hobby. Um, mm-hmm. And then we also grow organic vegetables Okay. Um, and also eggs. And we sell all our products locally, um, just in the local community. Um, we're very fortunate to have, um, to be in a community where there's a, a high demand for local products and the ability to support um, a number of, of local farms in that community. Um, and so I'm lucky in that I don't have to travel real far to get to my um, market of customers. Oh. Okay. So you're a food farmer, not a commodity farmer. Right. What's, yep. the, dif- what's the difference? <laughs> um, so uh, <laughs> there are a number of differences, but basically, um, yeah, a lot of times people lump um, all farms together. And certainly, you know, the practice of agriculture, of, you know, tilling and planting and growing includes a whole lot of different types of farms. Um but we do not, we grow food for consumption by other people. So we are not growing um, row crops or, you know, things that tend to be used as commodities that can be stored and traded um, and that can kind of be used um, as economic Well, you're shipping. Tools. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we just yeah. grow, we grow food. You grow food and people eat it as opposed to. Um, but the big farms or what we kind of tend to think uh, about farming is the, the, uh, the big combines and the grain towers and shipping it on barges and all over, you know, the world. And we think about the trade wars and things like that. That's not affecting you. It is not affecting me personally or directly. Um, not that it doesn't effect. I mean, those things do, I mean, commodity farmers are farmers um, Mm -hmm. as well. They're just growing a different product and they are very much influenced by things like trade. um, And they receive a lot of subsidies. um, Help, financial help. Right. But because, um, because my market is local and mostly a direct market, meaning I sell direct to the customers, I don't see a lot of issues coming from trade 
wars or um, changes in subsidy or anything like that. And I haven't seen anything over the last year. You know, sometimes I do rely on um, purchasing feed, which is mm-hmm. more, um, you know, that's part of that whole thing where you're dealing with price fluctuation and, um, you know, storing and then selling of grains. And so in that sense, um, you do see price fluctuations based on subsidies and on what's going on trade-wise. But um, honestly, grain prices for me have been fairly stable over the last year. Um, I purchase all my feed grain um, from a cooperative of Mennonite farmers out of Kentucky that grow organic feed grain. Hmm. Um, And I don't know if it's them specifically that that that's been real stable price-wise or not. (laughs) So so over the last year and to give, just to give a little more um, background, I know I gave an overview of our farm, um, but I have also been involved with um, our local online farmer's market Mm-hmm. which started in 2007 and sells directly to customers from a variety of growers. And so basically it's a, um, a way for sellers, farmers um, to enter who are small and usually beginning um, to enter into a local market. And it's pretty low risk for farmers um, and it allows access to local foods from customers in the area. Um, So I've been involved in that as well as our food hub, which is a wholesale version of that same um, online farmer's market. And I'm also the president of the Southeast Tennessee Young Farmers Coalition, which is a chapter of the National Young Farmers Coalition. Mm -hmm. Um, So through those avenues, I've interacted with a lot of our area farmers um, in the past year. And so I can, I have some anecdotes of the last year. I don't really have stats on hand as far as how everyone's doing. Um, But the biggest issue for us last year, um, as for everyone probably was COVID. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to see um, what that, (laughs) what that did for, for our local farms. Um, Most of the farms that I interact with are small, Um, and most of them sell directly to consumers, but not all of them. Um, The main thing we saw were these huge supply chain disruptions. And for many of us that sell directly to consumer, it was, um, it was a boom time. Um, It was really fascinating. Our sales through the online farmer's market, and I'd I'm no longer formally connected with the online farmer's market other than I sell through them. I'm not, I do not sit on the board. Um, But their sales, you know, more than doubled. Um, We went from in years past, a big sales week would be like $4,500 in sales. So all our growers together would sell that much. Um, And this year, starting in April um, and starting with the lockdowns, our sales went up to $10,000 almost immediately weekly, and then um, hovered up around 12,000 once vegetables really started coming in. So we could not catch up to grow the amount of stuff that there was demand for um, because 
we were already selling online and we're kind of a minimal um, contact option for folks. We were able to be um, really nimble and flexible, I guess, and to pivot really quickly. So the first week that lockdown happened, um, we were able to completely revamp our pickup so that we could do curbside pickup and prepack orders um, and you know figure out how to get PPE to all our packers. Uh, personal and so protection we really, Personal yes. protection. Yeah. So we really benefited in that way in that our sales went through the roof. Um, and they stayed up from uh, April all the way through the end of November. And now they're they're down some. Um, and some of that may be people going back to work and falling into old habits. Um, some of that is just that it's the down season and we don't have the... Right, you don't have a um, lot to... Yeah, we don't have the product. But so that's what happened for our sell, our farmers that are selling directly to customers. Things were, were pretty good. Um, and then we have other farmers in our network who rely on wholesale sales. And so they're selling um, wholesale items to restaurants, one farm in particular that sells cheese. And they had a really different um, set of situations where those restaurants closed. And so they... Um, they saw their sales drop. Now we were able to, with our kind of network of farmers, um, we were able to pick up some of those sales and direct them through our retail outlet. Mm -hmm. um, and also with our food hub, our food hub, you know, it buys from, it actually doesn't buy and sell. It actually is just a connector, but it connects local farms with wholesale um, you know, buyers such as the University of the South. And when the university shut down, that um, decreased their sales, but we were able to then move those wholesale sales into our retail market so that we were helping those people, you know, redirect and sell direct to customers. And so demand went up, the direct demand went up high, wholesale demand went down, and we were in just a really good position to be able to to switch that around really quick and make the supply chain um, trade-offs necessary um, because we're small. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, I think that larger farms, again, probably commodity, uh, were affected uh, in that the markets not only were going up and down, but they weren't able to supply on a larger basis to like restaurants and that because they were closing. Yeah, absolutely. Right. We did see some, you know, we did see some of the same thing come out of um, federal government initiatives like the CARES Act right. and the um, CFAP, the COVID farmers. I can't remember the rest of the <laughs> acronym. But, right, right. Um, I kept trying to, uh, yeah, make them an acronym. Yeah. but <laughs> Assistance program, farmers assistance program. We mm -hmm. saw some things where indeed there was money that went to um, wholesale distributors to figure out ways to um, take, to change, to make these changes in the supply chain and take stuff that was sitting and not being sold in these wholesale markets, right. um, repackage it and get it to customers, either retail customers or in often cases to food banks and to then subsidize that transaction so that that food wasn't being wasted and was making it to food banks. So we did see some programs that um, 
did try to address it, but it's just for larger um, distributors and larger, you know, in these bigger supply chains, it's just really much harder for them to be nimble and uh, change when the conditions change so quickly. Right, right. So we also saw the other thing that we, that was really kind of stunning. We have had a bottleneck in meat processing as far as access that farmers have to meat processing. It's been an issue for many years, um, but it just was exacerbated by COVID. The the uh, demand for meat um, in the direct sale market, so buying directly from farmers, went through the roof. And so we couldn't keep meat in our freezers. We sold out and we couldn't get, um, you know, we can only have, there's still only so many animals in our fields, but we couldn't schedule um, processing dates for them because everyone needed a processing date because the demand went up everywhere. Um, and our processors just weren't able to keep up. And they're still not. I mean, to this day, the processor that I use is booked to the end of 2021. Oh, um, really? And has people on a waiting list. I'm on a waiting list for a fall slaughter date. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so that was really exacerbated. And, you know, some good things happened there, too, through those federal programs that provided assistance. Um the state was able to allocate money toward expanding um, expanding processing uh, oh, okay. within the state. So a number of the custom processors um, expanded with the idea that in the next year they would become USDA certified processors. Um, and many of the existing USDA certified processors also received money to expand. So you know, that's still all in process, but we're hoping that, you know, some of that investment that happened, although it was very fast um, and I don't know how well thought out, um, but that that will end up decreasing some of that bottleneck. It's a hard, it's difficult because processors, um, you know, that's, it's a tight margin business as well. And they're depending on farmers and on the demand for meat that farmers have. Um, And agriculture, especially locally, has often been this kind of boom bust um, cycle. And so we want to see more access to processors so that we can process our meat and sell it. Um, But we don't want to see so many new processors open that there's not enough demand for local meat and not enough farmers and that they fail. So it's, it's a balancing act economically. Yeah. I think a lot of people were turning to home cooked meals again and local meat and local food. Do you, do you have any sense other than just hope as I do that people kind of thought, wow, this is not so bad. This, I could, I could still do this when I go back to work. Are we going to go back to Velveeta? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> boxes of mac and cheese in the pizza industry <laughs> well that's really the big question that um mm-hmm. i know many of our farmers have been asking all year um we saw this boom in sales and much of it was because people's habits were disrupted so suddenly they had all day tuesday with nothing to do and could easily get to the market pickup um and they decided they didn't you know they could be home cooking these home cooked meals 
Um, and so buying raw ingredients directly from farmers made more sense. Um, so we're still waiting to figure that out. Like, do we, you know, what happens now? What happens when things go back to normal? Do people go back to their old habits or do they continue to buy from local farmers? That's a, it's a huge question. Mm-hmm. One thing we're trying to do and um, I throw around the word we, but in my role as the president of our Southeast Tennessee Young Farmers Coalition, we kind of do, um, we are, just to give an uh, introduction, <laughs> we're um, a grassroots network of young farmers and ranchers that um, support working together for a brighter, more equitable future for U.S. agriculture. Um, and we kind of have different strategies in how we do that. One is through policy and advocacy work. But one of the things we've really been focusing on over this last year is simply supporting each other as farmers um, and doing kind of coalition building and uh, work within our farmer network to just figure out how we can support each other um, and get through this time. And so one of the practical things we're trying to figure out as farmers that also share this online market is how do we take advantage of the expanded sales um, and grow the market in a way that we can meet more customers where they are. Mm. So if that means that people are going back to work and they, you know, they can't come in on Tuesday afternoon, which is our only weekly pickup to pick up their groceries, then um, how can we, easily expand to consider new pickup and drop-off locations? How can we think about, um, you know, can we do home deliveries? Can we make those things work uh, with our resources? So we're thinking about it, but it's still, it's a huge question. And there's a lot of risk involved um, (laughs) in moving forward in any direction. Right. Right. Do do you um, supply restaurants, your organization, or your group of uh, your coalition to any restaurants? Is that something... Because the farm-to-table movement has been big. I, I know in rural Tennessee, there's not a lot of maybe restaurants to take advantage of, but Chattanooga or kind of suburban Chattanooga or Nashville, as it starts to expand more towards middle Tennessee, is that ever a possibility? Yeah, it is. So our, um, I've got to just kind of differentiate a little bit. It's although I, I realize I, I wear a lot of hats, um, but the, our coalition is, you know, the Southeast Tennessee Young Farmers Coalition is a nonprofit um, coalition. So we, uh, you know, we offer kind of a support network and political advocacy, um, policy advocacy, advocacy rather, um, and education, um, those types of services. But the, Food Hub, the Rooted Here Food Hub and the online market um, is an avenue that is a for-profit organization, um, which I'm not formally on the board of, um, but do grow, you know, I work for them as a volunteer and I grow and sell through those markets. Um, So one of the things we're, as a coalition, we're kind of partnering and advising um, the Food Hub on ways that you know, they might be able to expand that market. But one of the things they are looking into and have been for years is how to uh, increase sales, 
you know, use our location on I-24 to increase our outreach and our sales to Chattanooga and Nashville, both. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, does that answer <laughs> your question? Yeah, I think so. When you say advise that, so that could be another farmer that was, uh, was bigger and, and wanted to do some food farming, you could maybe help them put that line in to serve rest, a, a restaurant or another hub? Sure, sure. One of the things that we have really been um, seeing an interest in this year, and I'd, I'll say our chapter is, is brand new. I mean, we started in 2019. And it includes and so, uh, parts of Alabama and Georgia. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Although we don't currently together. have any Georgia or Alabama members. But. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'd like to think well, we might goal. someday. <laughs> Good. <laughs> These are people that um, live there that, that eat. So <laughs> There's a lot of interest among our members to um, figure out better ways to collaborate between farms. So because many of our farmer members are small and sell directly to customers. Um, in the past, we've ended up, com you know, competing against each other in these really small mm. farmers markets. Mm -hmm. right. And we've all kind of woken up, I feel like, to the fact that we actually need to work together and combine our strengths um, so that we can sell, you know, cover our local area, but also figure out how to reach out to a greater area to sell our stuff and um, kind of basically expand our brand, our own individual brands to include, um, you know, our neighboring farms. Cause we feel like we're not in it for our farm to survive. We want to have, we want to have lots of local farms. We want to have a local food economy, you know? Right. right. And so, um, so, as farms, as individuals, we're kind of working together, but as our coalition, we're also providing guidance to, um, to our farmer members and to anyone who's interested in, you know, best practices in working together as farmers and best practices in figuring out how to reach new markets and things like that. Right, right. Um, but we are kind of limited by the, you know, it's, it's a little tricky. We haven't, there are a number of different organizations and farms um, and we all work in different capacities, um, but it's the role that I used to play on the board of Rooted Here um, and the online farmer's market, you know, is one of marketing and, um, you know, aggregating food and, and doing these, these important pieces of business for farmers. Mm -hmm. um, but as a nonprofit organization, um, through the Southeast Tennessee Young Farmers Coalition, it's we're not doing that actual work of <laughs> farming, marketing, aggregating that stuff, but we can okay. advise and educate on okay. you know ways to do that. Okay. Is this there are I think there is a lot of interest in folks going of folks going into farming. Um, okay. The there are a lot of young people that that want to go into farming. Um, and the, you know, the mission of the National Young Farmers Coalition and of our chapter is to, you know, help those young people 
go into farming and be successful as farmers. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are a lot of big issues that we need to tackle. The number one issue for people trying to get into farming is land access. Um, Land is expensive. um, And if you are just coming out of college or just coming out of high school with the hope of starting a farm, um, you're at a place in your life with very little capital, um, unless you're, you know, a second generation farmer. But even in that situation, um, you know, you may not be coming into it with the resources you need. Farming is really difficult. It's very risky. And a lot of the capitalization has to happen up front. So, um, and you may have access some to college. land is a huge obstacle. Right. And you may have some college debt too. If, if right. Well, that's the number two obstacle. Oh, okay. I'm um, sorry. That's okay. See how <laughs> much I learned from you. <laughs> access to land, student loan debt, um, access to labor, but also fair wages for the labor you may be doing. Um, you know, if you're working as a laborer on someone else's farm in order to make enough money to one day have your own farm um, or even to purchase that farm's produce, um, you need to have fair wages. Um, additionally, there's just a lot of cost of living expenses. It's, it's a risky endeavor to start the business of farming. It's also risky to choose um, socially and cost-wise in certain situations to choose living in a rural community. Right. Um, and so, you know, all the expenses, housing, healthcare, especially, um, and access to healthcare, access to education, all those things, um, you know, if we want to encourage young people to move into our rural communities and to take over where these older farmers are retiring, then they have to be able to access land. They have to come into the situation with access to capital um, and not a whole lot of debt. Um, and they have to want to live in a rural community. And so, you know, those are all the, the big obstacles. And healthcare, of course. Do you find that federal and state policies, um, how well do they meet any of those needs or some or all? Um, do you see much movement in, in, you know, your mission to, uh, you know, from a state and federal level to, to move towards uh, removing yeah, these the, obstacles? You know, it's the, a lot of people like to say that, you know, our system is broken. Um, I don't think that it is. I think that, uh, the way that it has worked and the way that it, it was designed um, has made it so that at this point, um, large, and I, not necessarily just large, but um, there are a few uh, corporate interests that make money off of agriculture. The majority of the money made off of agriculture is through people selling inputs and market and um, marketing. It's not the folks who are actually doing the farming, if they're large or if they're small, it doesn't necessarily matter. Those farmers are pinched. Um, And this, you know, this is how we set up the system. We set it up to favor um, 
large corporate farms, um, sometimes uh, multinational corporations, um, mm -hmm. and we set it up to favor rich white landowners. Um, okay. That's how it was set up. And so, uh, yeah, so <laughs> there's policy mm -hmm. change that needs to happen. Um, I don't, a lot of the things I feel like we see coming from state and local government um, don't address the real issues okay. that are causing this, you know, this issue of young people not being able to take the risks necessary to become entrepreneurs, including farmers. Um, so we, um, Southeast Tennessee Young Farmers, as part of the National Young Farmers Coalition, we're a nonpartisan organization. Um, and our interest is really like, what are the practical policies that will allow young people to begin farming? So land access, um, you know, on the one hand, well, and also let me just say, you know, what are the practical policies, but how are those policies, you know, what drives that? I don't necessarily think that policy change drives change on the ground. I think it's the other way around. And oh. so on the one hand, we're very interested in advocating for policy, but we're also trying to work together as farmers um, to make that change on the ground, to drive the policy, to reflect what we see as working. Um, so I don't, that's not a very specific answer, but. But can you give an example? Is there something that either, I know that your, your group is kind of small, but, but other groups have um, worked on what, that they felt that, that they're working on or they felt that they're successful at? I think so. Um, okay. So I'll give you kind of where our organization is headed or where our chapter is headed. I mean, certainly like on the federal level, there are policies, um, there's work being done to make sure that people who are retiring from farming um, can make their land accessible to people that want to get into farming. A lot of that work comes through land trusts. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so anything to support that work is good, um, especially if it means access to people that have been oppressed in the past. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, you know, farming is the second most white occupation um, in the country. Mm -hmm. And that's not a mistake. That's part of the system that we've built um, from the very beginning. And um, so policy that um, encourages that land transfer, that discourages land speculation that drives up land prices. prices. Mm -hmm. um, those are all good steps. Uh, certainly policy to alleviate student loan debt, to make education more affordable. Um, those are all good steps. Um, at the, I'm thinking national level, or in, on the local level, um, one of the things that we, our chapter is really looking at as kind of our umbrella project that we're hoping to take on in the coming years is building um, a farm incubator. And these have been kind of tried around the country, but we're really looking at a model that combines um, 
pure uh, farm, farm to farm education, um, and also training by farmers to people that are interested in learning about farming, as well as access to um, more formal education through like the University of the South and some other um, more formal avenues. But not just offering kind of training to people that are interested in farming, but offering them the next step, which is how do you write a business plan? How do you figure out all the technical things you need to do, but also then how do you connect with people that can get you access to land? Um, can we support as farmers a, you know, kind of collective piece of land where people can try out ideas and try out the marketplace? Um, but we want to set up something within our chapter where we're moving we're creating a space where people can try things out and can learn, but can also move toward land access. So we can connect all those pieces um, that are currently missing for folks. Okay. <laughs> I don't know, does that answer the question? Sure. Um, I was going to also, um, when we talk about national, um, we, you mentioned healthcare and um, do we need the ACA? There's hope that maybe we can get, because farmers don't have health insurance, right? Yeah, health insurance is a um, a huge cost. <laughs> yes, well, of a huge cost of living, um, a huge cost for farmers, and also, you know, access to farming is a dangerous occupation right. sometimes, mm -hmm. and so having access to actual health care and hospitals. Um, so anything that can reduce, you know, any of those cost of living things. I mean, if we think about, and I, I like to think about, like, what is what are I, what's the ideal situation for me as a farmer that sells locally? And assuming we want to have, um, you know, rural communities that are vibrant and healthy and where people want to live, that maybe we can repopulate some of those rural communities. Um, you know, I think about my own farm and the fact that, well, just to give away the punchline it comes down to wages <laughs> um, okay I think about the fact that you know I know what it takes to grow an egg or a lamb chop or you know certain vegetables and um I have to you know charge a certain price to make money on those things and it's difficult for me to compete with um, the stuff people can get at a grocery store, because sometimes it has to do with econo economies of scale, um, but oftentimes it has to do with the wages that are paid to farm workers on other farms that I'm competing against. Um, and we have been underpaying farm workers for hundreds um, of years, to put it mildly. Um, and so as a farmer, I compete against the depressed wages of other farm workers. And when I think about the ideal situation, like I would love to sell my food to my neighbors and have my neighbors afford to buy my food mm -hmm. um, and support me. And I would love to be able to, as a farmer, afford to support my neighbors in whatever, you know, job they do by being able to hire them. Um, but when anyone in that community is underpaid, it makes it so that no one can pay their neighbors to do the jobs they need to do. Right. Um, 
<laughs> and so, you know, a lot of the policy question comes down to me, um, for me to wages and how do we, how do we value each other's work um, and how do we make sure everyone is valued properly and everyone has a living wage. Equally, right. Um, and part of that is that we also have access to, um, you know, the basics. We need to make sure that people have access to food. We need to make sure people have access to housing, that people have access to healthcare, you know, so that we can all be living, you know, not as, you know, super wealthy people, but within a level of comfort that we can take our own economic risks, be they farming or any other entrepreneurial activity. Last year, you made a comment, and if you want to pick up on this, but you said that we live in a time when nutritious food is a privilege of the wealthy and farmers cannot make ends meet. Do you remember that? Remember yeah. saying that? And that's because we failed to pay the real cost of food up front and said place. Right, exactly. The and cost elsewhere in right, the system. Right. right. And often that cost, you know, is it's not paid up front and because of that, the environment suffers, because of that, um, laborers suffer. So yeah, we need to be paying the real cost of food, but we need to be paying the real cost for all our needs. <laughs> um, right, but right. The, and that doesn't mean that like folks who right now cannot afford to eat the food that I grow should figure out how to pay me for the food that I grow. No, they need to be paid for what they're doing or even if they're in a hard time, you know, we need to figure out a way to make sure they have nutritious food and that farmers are getting paid. Um, so we've had some innovative things come out of COVID. And one thing that uh, we've kind of the national or the, our chapter of the Young Farmers Coalition has helped to um, kind of work through the ideas of um, is a sliding scale CSA. And um, before I go into that, let me, this actually came from the rooted, the folks that rooted here, um, when COVID started, they were also able, and this, um, I was not a part of this. This is some amazing women on the board of rooted here who just did what needed to be done. They were able to put together a program where customers of ours could donate money to local food banks um, so that those food banks could then order um, food from our farmers through our wholesale food hub. Um, and so that allowed us to raise money, get it to the food hub, excuse me, get it to the food banks in the area um, and still pay farmers for their work um, and the food they grew and get nutritious food into the hands of folks that really needed it. So that idea has kind of, that's been going on through Rooted Here, which has been great. And that idea got us thinking about setting up a multi-farm CSA, which is a subscription service um, that would be a sliding scale subscription service. And so it is a way to address some of that, some of the um, inequality in access to food um, mm -hmm. while also paying farmers a fair wage. So what it does is it allows for people to buy a subscription and then they get a box of food once a week. 
Um, and if they can afford to be, you know, to donate, then they can pay a higher, a little bit higher rate for their subscription. Um, they can pay ahead in one large chunk. Um, and basically they can subsidize a subscription for someone who can't afford to pay. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you have a sliding scale of fees. Um, and then you're also off, able to offer um, folks who might not be able to afford to pay the ability to get a box um, probably delivered to them in a way that allows for um, to overcome obstacles of transportation and um, things like that. So that's something that Emily Hyde is working on. Right. Mm -hmm. um, she's the market manager at uh, the online farmer's market. And this is kind of something she's putting together on the side. Um, and she is also the secretary of our chapter of the Young Farmers Coalition. Um, so that's something we've kind of been just toying around with the ideas of, and she is kind of running with it now, uh, oh, which cool. is an interesting local way to address some of the issues of income inequality. Mm -hmm. I always like to talk to you, Jessica, because you are um, the reason for the, po the podcast. <laughs> what, what about us is, is rural issues. And also, um, because if I had a little bell that wouldn't bother you, whenever you said something, I'm like, yeah, I know we talked about that, or that's good, or something about the rural areas. If I could just go like, ding, <laughs> ding, 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 but that, that would be disruptive. So I just do that in my head. Um, <laughs> but I would say that the focus in addition or included in that is understanding the problems of rural Tennessee in order to improve the quality of life for all of us, ding, you said that, including fully funded uh, public education. We didn't talk about that, but if you, mean, you have a family, farmers wanna have a family, um, the fresh air and, and all that. And so you wanna have a good public education system in your rural area, right? Also want incre to increase economic opportunity. Um, certainly expanding broadband is part of both of those things uh, and facilitating affordable, accessible healthcare and to try to achieve this through individual action and um, through um, better legislative representation. We are a nonpartisan organization, um, but we are a grassroots farmer organization. And so what we really want to see happen regardless of uh, political party um, is that we wanna see farmers and especially young farmers as part of the conversation. Um, I feel like there's not one way to address these issues. Um, there are uh, there are multiple ways <laughs> to address the issues of land access, um, of access to capital, access to healthcare. And what we're really looking for as farmers are the pragmatic, practical things that work. Um, so we are, um, you know, we would love to be reached out to as, you know, to provide voices um, and to be a part of the discussion um, to inform to inform what goes on. There's certainly, um, I feel like, you know, it's not, uh, people are, people understand and they're starting to understand even more. I feel like the current um, state uh, administration has actually done a lot to reach out to small farms and to try to increase um, 
what do they call it? They have a word for it, but uh, rural economic opportunity um, through agriculture. So I feel like people are understanding the importance of the moment for, you know, they're understanding that we need to have young farmers um, and that we can't assume that, you know, that we can have our young people saddled with debt and unable to access land and that we'll continue to have rural communities that thrive. Um, and so I feel like it's just really important to emphasize that this is not a partisan issue. Like it is um, certainly, I feel like I've reached out to people um, in both parties and people have reached out to me. Um, and it's, it's something that we can all agree on that we, we have to have young farmers. So yeah. um, I'd love to see continued conversation um, on the topic. And I'm really interested in, you know, what are, what are the things we can do on the ground that make sense that seem to work? How can we use those experiences to influence policy? Um, and how can we choose the policy that makes sense for the, for the most people and has right. the most benefit? How can we be practical and pragmatic? Um, because that's really what we need in our rural communities. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds like a plan. Yeah. And they've, um, Department of Agriculture has, you know, they've specifically targeted distressed counties and looking for agriculture initiatives that they can help to invest in, in those mm -hmm. distressed counties, which I happen to live in one of those distressed counties. You so I'm do. Aware of that. You do. Um, and so really, I feel like the more, it, you know, for folks that are out there in agriculture that are listening, um, that are younger than 59, um, you know, the more you, your voice can be part of the mix, the better. Because mm -hmm. um, we're the ones on the ground that know what the issues are. And they're varied, you know, we're not a, we're not a solid block of people that all believe the same thing. We have very, uh, you know, varied needs based on what the, what our farms are, what crops we grow. Um, mm -hmm. But I think we can all agree that we need to be able to transition uh, to a new generation of farmers. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Well, um, thank you, Jess. I think we'll get some listeners to think about the things that we've talked about today and reach out to, if not you, with your organization, which the website is... The sure. National Young Farmers Coalition is at youngfarmers.org. Mm -hmm. um, and our chapter, the Southeast Tennessee Young Farmers Coalition chapter, um, you can link to it from there and that should get you to our Instagram and our Facebook. Um, and I believe it has our email address. We don't have a website yet as a chapter. That's okay, not... yeah, no, the, the, I, yeah, I meant the national. But we're yeah, working I was on it. That, we have, um, we've had amazing, this last year, we've had amazing support from the University of the South and that, we have um, some interns that are students that um, have a fellowship to work with us um, to kind of help us build our capacity as an organization. And that's been fantastic. Um, and so website is something that's kind of on that list. We haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'm sure you will by the time we talk next year. Maybe. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> There's a lot on that list. <laughs> Okay, thanks again, Jess. And this has been Thank uh, you so much for having me, Sandy. I really appreciate it. And this has been uh, What About Us, part of the Tennessee Howler Network. So take a take a look, tell your friends. <laughs>